It's uh, just lovely to be with you today, and I've really been blessed with the worship and praise today as well, and uh, for the lovely welcome. Well, Phil asked me to share a little bit about um, what I uh, do um, in uh, my spare time as a, as a chaplain to the Army, Army Reserve. So, a little bit about me. There's uh, First Garva, and the most important people in my life are my uh, wife, Elaine, and daughter, Sarah. And they permit me graciously to be able to, to, to do this uh, additional ministry uh, as well. And as you've already heard, it has involved me being away from home uh, for extended periods of time uh, occasionally. But where did it all begin? Well, when I was at Union Theological College training for the ministry, we had an opportunity to attend a, 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 a course for around a week at the Armed Forces Chaplaincy Training College over in England. And there I am in the driver's seat of the tank. I went along there when I was at Union College and really uh, was inspired by this kind of uh, ministry within the Armed Forces uh, Chaplaincy. Uh, Elaine has her own career as a social worker. Um, her father wasn't well at the time we were getting married and it just wasn't meant to be on a full-time uh, capacity. I was conducting uh, Royal British Legion service in First Garva and the guest speaker was a former Chaplain General, the Reverend Dr Victor Dobbin, uh, a Presbyterian uh, minister. And Victor said to me, have you ever thought about army chaplaincy? I said, yes I had, but it wasn't for me in a full-time capacity. I said, well, you could also do it on a part-time capacity. In those days, it was a TA. It's now Army Reserve. And that week, I went and got the application forms. And my wife hasn't spoken to Victor since. But um, maybe not quite. But anyway, the training involves you um, going to Sandhurst. And I spent four weeks in Sandhurst, uh, uh, where you pass out, um, literally, practically, uh, uh, as well. Uh, I came away uh, a lot less of me as, there was, as, uh, as, as what went. But it's quite an arduous process. You have to go through the Army Officer Selection Board, go to Sandhurst, and you train with professionally qualified officers such as doctors and dentists and lawyers and vets and that kind of thing. And so that was me at Sandhurst in 2014. And then from there, I was posted to um, the 2nd Battalion of the Royal Irish Regiment. Their headquarters are in Thiepville uh, in Lisburn. And there are the Reserve Infantry Battalion. Um, that's based in Northern Ireland. And you can see how they're scattered throughout the province here. All the red dots are places where the Royal Irish are based, and I would visit those locations. The blue arrow is where Thiepful Barracks is, the headquarters. And then the two yellow uh, pins are the training locations in Ballykindler down in County Down, and then McGilligan, uh, not very far away from us. So that's where I would spend uh, my, my time with two Royal Irish. So what are the sorts of things that I do? Well, perhaps on the Lord's Day, before I would go to First Garva, um, just as dawn breaks, I would be conducting maybe a field service for the Royal Irish if they are up in McGilligan or maybe Ballykinner is a little bit further away from me to get back to church on a Sunday. But I could have around 200 or so young men and women standing in front of me um, conducting a service uh, of worship. When I look around the pews in my own church in, in Garva, Valley Rasheen, we're getting a bit thin on the ground when it comes to young men and young women. Here is my ministry to young men and young women in their uh, late teens, 18s, 19s, early 20s. Um, I have an opportunity to lead worship with them on a regular basis um, and at annual camps as well. 
Other things in which I do would be to teach. You teach army values and standards. You see courage, discipline, respect for others, integrity, loyalty, selfless commitment. They're all Christian values, aren't they? They're values in which you and I should be living out as Christians. And so it's an opportunity to unpack those and what it means for them as uh, soldiers as well. And obviously to point them towards uh, Christ as well by saying these are things which believers should reflect. And then other things in which I would share with them and get them to think about are just war. When is it right to go to war? Is it ever right to go to war? The ethics of war and also what it means to have to uh, deal with death. Through the generosity of uh, the Gideons, uh, I've been able to distribute around 300 New Testaments to soldiers um, within the Royal Irish Regiment. The Gideons produce a lovely army camouflage Bible and with the Royal Irish Regiment crest on it as well. So it means something uh, to the soldiers when they get it. I had a young soldier who was away doing his um, basic training. And he said to me, Padre, and that's what they call chaplains, Padre says, I took that wee Bible with me and I read it every night I was away in Catholic. I've been away before with the army. I had to provide some pastoral cover to the United Nations. Um, the Royal Irish Regiment were there in Cyprus. And I spent about six months or so in Cyprus in uh, January 2016. So that was my first taste, if you like, of being away with the army for a reasonably uh, long period of time. But other things which I've done on behalf of our denomination has been to conduct uh, commemoration services. And there was centenary services for various um, World War I battles, which I've been able to uh, lead and conduct um, I've visited the Somme as well, and I was also able to go and visit an ans- a, a relative's grave there too. And on behalf of our denomination, wrote a little history book of First World War, uh, First World War, and Irish Presbyterians' involvement within that. And on behalf of our denomination too, led a battlefield tour where we had nearly 50 Presbyterians from all over uh, who went uh, to visit the war graves and also pay our respects to the great, uh, and, and remember the four, four um, Presbyterian clergymen who uh, died during uh, the First World War, um, uh, acting as chaplains and others who were serving in the medical regiments um, as stretcher bearers and that kind of thing too. And then um, one thing most recently in 2018 was the presentation of new colours to the Royal Irish Regiment and there were 6,000 spectators who gathered in the Titanic quarter of the first time this event was able to happen outside the wire in a public space in Northern Ireland. So maybe that's a sign of how things are moving on. But this is the letter in which probably many wives dread their husbands would receive within the army as volunteers, as reservists. This is a call-out notice that was sent to the Presbyterian Church of Ireland and to me to say that I was being called up. I was being drafted up, if you like. I was being deployed to go to Afghanistan. And so that meant, yes, I was having to go. And I received that that around this time last year, um, the preparations were starting to be in place where the Royal Irish Regiment chaplain in the 1st Battalion, that's a full-time regiment, he wasn't able to deploy. And so then as a reservist in the 2nd Battalion, I was being called up to have to go to Afghanistan to serve with the Royal Irish Regiment there. And they're out there with NATO. uh, And NATO are currently training the Afghan National Army and police to be able to protect uh, their their land. It's a very dangerous place, uh, Afghanistan, as I say. And so this is a vital role in trying to equip the Afghan people to protect themselves against terrorism. 
There are around um, 17,000 troops out there from NATO countries. You can see all the different flags there on the screen of all the countries that are, are represented, and there are 1,000 um, UK troops out there um, at that time. So Easter Monday, Easter Sunday last year, uh, I preached my Easter morning service in First Garva and then said farewell to my family. And the last thing that I'll always remember, I'll never forget this, was the sobs of my daughter as I waved goodbye to her as my dad came and picked me up as we drove down the driveway. And there for the first time I realised the cost involved to military families, the cost of families, uh, to wives and children as they say farewell to uh, husbands or, uh, uh, who go to serve. So I left um, First Garva and ended up in a place called Chilwell. It's a mission training mobilisation centre where you go and be prepared to deploy. So there's various courses that are held there um, to equip you uh, uh, to ensure that you're going to be safe out there, as safe as you can be, and you're given um, body armour and all those kinds of things as well. And then I went and joined with the Royal Irish, who are based in, in, in Turnhill, Market Drayton. And then we made our way to RAF Bryce Norton to fly to Afghanistan. Flying a big passenger plane to begin with. We arrived in a place called Minad in the United Arab Emirates. And then we transferred to another plane, a more powerful plane that has protective defensive capabilities and to fly into Kabul. And you arrive in at night as well for security purposes. So it was funny sitting in a plane sideways in the dark. Uh, but that was the, the journey into, into Kabul. And if Ryanair could make us all sit that way, they could probably get more people on board and uh, make more money out of us as well. But it was certainly quite daunting, quite eerie, quite scary to be sitting in a plane in, dark, in the darkness flying into Kabul. And there's Kabul. I spent the first night or so in those tents in very warm conditions, mid-20s to 30s. And so my parish ministry was based in the, in the city of Kabul, and you can see the red boxed areas where I was located. Um, the Hamid Kazi International Airport is a big NATO base, and I spent a lot of time there. New Kabul compound, where the Royal Irish were based um, in greater numbers, and a place called Ta Camp Taipan. So for example, to get from here to the Manse, to get from here to um, Ballyclaber, uh, you wouldn't go by road. You wouldn't walk. You wouldn't go uh, uh, by transportation. Road transportation. You would fly. It was so dangerous. You would fly. I'm going to talk a little bit about that in a moment or two. So the Royal Irish and a one rifles battalion came to take over from the Royal Anglican Regiment and a regiment of Gurkhas who were out there. And um, daily routine was I got up early in the morning, six in the morning, and spent my time in morning devotions and spent, spent a pattern of doing that. And so the brigadier, the commanding officer, they knew that where I was, the little picnic table in the corner of the base, uh, was where I was spending time with God each morning, spending time in prayer, praying for them. And they really, really appreciated the fact that I was praying for them. It was the least that I, I could do. And also fitness is an important thing too. Um, keeping yourself fit within the military environment, having to get from A to B, you need to keep yourself fit. And that was an important regime for me uh, as well. You couldn't exercise outside um, that often because of the, the air quality, um, but it was an important discipline in which you need to have within the military of uh, keeping, keeping yourself fit and healthy. Now, 
As I said, you made your way around in armoured vehicles, foxhounds. I was only out in these a few times because the, 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 the dangers out in the roads are, are so unpredictable. Vehicle-borne IEDs, suicide bombers. These things happen on an almost day-in-day -day basis, daily basis out in Afghanistan. They never hit our headlines unless it is a large atrocity or um, NATO or British troops are affected in some way. I went out in these vehicles um, sparingly recognising the danger involved. When I did travel in them, I didn't stop praying from as soon as I got into them until I got out of them. And the uniform was soaking with sweat as well because of the heat uh, as well. It's a, a frightening thing to be out on, on the roads in Afghanistan. So most of the time I travelled by helicopter, by the Puma helicopter that flew over our heads during the height of the troubles here in Northern Ireland. The helicopters are the same age as me. Um, they're in their mid-40s, approaching their 50s. And that was the daily transport of getting around. I'm going to show you a little video. It's two minutes long of what it's like being in Kabul. A 5th century fortress overlooks Kabul. It's a city said to date back three and a half thousand years, where old and new collide. Below our Puma helicopter, traffic weaves through busy streets, alongside shopping centres, mosques and wedding halls. But the IED threat from the Taliban and so-called Islamic State means this is a dangerous city to drive in. Often it's much safer to fly. We know that the, the roads aren't as safe as, as perhaps they could be or, or, or will be in the future. Um, so knowing that, that we're here providing safe transport for, for our own troops and NATO and allied troops that are in theatres, you know, it's, it's excellent. We couldn't want for more, really. The Torrell Aviation Detachment, around 80 Brits in total, work out of the international airport. With the Afghan forces leading on security now, their role is non-combat. Moving passengers, freight and, if needed, medical casualties. Their cover allowed 400 extra NATO missions to happen last winter. There are just a small number of air crew, ground crew and pilots here from RAF Benson, but they are extremely busy. They're flying on average 180 hours every single month and covering 15 different locations across the city. Of course, it is a very busy airfield. I don't know how it ranks against others in the world, but I've never encountered anywhere that has so many fixed-wing fixed -wing aircraft movements as well as helicopters. So the uh, the air traffickers, uh, Americans, but by and large Afghans and then supported by the Americans, they have their work cut out and it gets very, very busy, certainly. Kabul sits in a huge valley, 6,000 feet above sea level. Its geography has a great impact on the weather here. For flying, it's monitored hour by hour. The winds pick up uh, dust and uh, can reduce visibility. And uh, with the high temperatures and also being at high altitude here, the air density is quite low. Uh, so it's quite critical to forecast the temperatures and the actual density of the air. So getting around Kabul was getting uh, a ride in a helicopter. It was just like getting a taxi or a bus uh, day by day. To visit somebody in hospital involved a bit of a journey uh, as well, and there were people who were injured out there, um, usually because of their, their own foolishness and playing sport and that kind of thing, but to visit them in hospital involved travelling by helicopter as well to a place called Bagram. 
And then I also had to go to the north of Afghanistan, to a place called Mazar al-Sharif, and flew in a big American Hercules up to there to visit uh, a British unit who were uh, located training Afghan special forces uh, for rifles. And they'd be spending maybe nine months to a year out there, whereas normal deployments around six months at a time. It was a very much a multinational and multi-denominational chaplaincy. You got an idea of the number of countries right there working with NATO. And so I had um, one other British chaplain who was with me. He was a chaplain to the rifles. He was a Baptist. There's a Roman Catholic uh, chaplain there from the Czech Republic. There's a, a Danish padre. She's a Lutheran. And then myself. So we wouldn't have obviously compromised ourselves with regards to our own uh, churchmanship, but we did indeed support each other with fellowship and, and, and friendship too. And an opportunity to conduct significant services when I was out there as well. The D-Day 75 commemorations, the 1st of July, Battle of the Somme commemorations, and also um, the Armed Forces Day as well. Let me let you have a look at the church here. On a Sunday morning, I would have maybe had six or eight people at church, and then in the evenings, it would have been around 30 or so. Sunday was a working day, so the soldiers were busy uh, staggering on and off on the various tasks that they had to do. Uh, Friday was the Muslim day of prayer, and that would have been a slacker day for them, but on the Lord's day, it was a busy day. Um, communion would have been celebrated at both services, morning and evening. And in the evening especially, there would have been a lot of Americans there um, for worship. And actually, I had four Mongolians one uh, Sunday evening uh, as well. Uh, Danes, uh, uh, people from Holland as well. So multinational uh, uh, and multi-denominational uh, as well. At a praise group, the guy who played the, the keyboard, he flew drones. The, uh, one of the, uh, an American who played the guitar, he was a doctor. And there was also a Polish guy who played um, the, the guitar. So they brought a great blessing as well to the worship. Unfortunately, unfortunately, not many of the Royal Irish, not many of the One Rifles English Regiment came to worship, sadly, and that was a, a great disappointment uh, to us. So I maybe had two or three from the Royal Irish Regiment who came, and the commanding officer uh, came once. None of the riflemen ever came to the church at all, and that was a, a great disappointment. Uh, they, they were busy, but uh, as I say, I think it's a reflection of the sign of the times as well. Finding the church was difficult because it was in the basement of a secure building. So I made little signs to point people to the direction of the church. And that did help. And I got one or two extra people who came along. We had a Bible study on a Monday night. And I averaged around six to eight people. Um, one person from the Royal Irish Regiment. The rest were mainly Americans. And we followed a new Bible study course, which was by Scripture Union. Uh, there's one uh, American guy who came along to that, uh, Bobby. He was an American soldier. And I just assumed that he was a mature Christian. He was at worship morning and evening and at the Bible study too. And it was on my last night being there running the Bible study, he said to me, he said, Padre, you know, I've only become a Christian since I've been, since I've been out here through the witness and influence of uh, you chaplains. And uh, I really want to know more about Jesus. And we had one or two more studies left of uh, the new course, and he wanted me to run them all for him. Um, and that was a wonderful opportunity to disciple him. There was lots of pastoral issues that were ongoing during the time. There were three young men who uh, felt suicidal when I was out there, getting a knock at your door uh, during the middle of the night to come and speak to somebody uh, and trying to encourage them to hand over their SA-80 automatic 
rifle and pistol um, and then organised their uh, return home uh, and the other uh, many pastoral situations that we would face in the walk of life um, that I encountered on a daily basis. What a wonderful privilege and opportunity to be able to go uh, and join them uh, as one of theirs, as a soldier, dressed in uniform, uh, to be accepted as one of them and to come alongside them, bringing the hope and love and assurance of uh, Jesus with them on a, on a daily basis. This is the one thing that military chaplaincy is very different from in other, other kinds of chaplaincy. You can have hospital chaplaincies, you can have university chaplaincies. Uh, when you're a hospital chaplain, you're not a patient in the hospital. You're not lying in the bed. When you're a school's chaplain or university chaplain, you're not a student. But as a military chaplain, you are recognised as one of them, uh, as, as being a soldier uh, with them. So my, the, the time went quickly, the three and a half months in which I was out there, and it was a wonderful blessing and opportunity to be able to serve our denomination and to serve Jesus in, uh, in this incredible way. I wanted to leave you with this uh, thought and return to the Word of God briefly um, th this morning. But Spurgeon, he said, we ought to regard the Christian church not as a luxurious hostelry where a Christian gentleman may each one dwell at his ease in his own inn, but as a barracks in which soldiers are gathered together to be drilled and trained for war. We are in a battle, brothers and sisters in Christ. Have you ever seen the old TV program, Dad's Army? It's set in the Second World War, isn't it? In Wilmington on sea. And we learn the exploits of the Home Guard as they await the invasion of Britain by the Germans. Alongside the main characters of Captain Mannering and Wilson, Jones and Pike, there's one, of them, uh, there's one who plays a minor role, and that's Hodges. He is an ARP warden. He's watching out for the air raids. He's looking, there's no lights being shown during the blackouts. And his catchphrase is, don't you know there's a war on? Those same words could be addressed to you and I today too. Don't you know there's a war on? But we're not talking about the ongoing wars in Iraq or Afghanistan or Syria today. We're not thinking about the other places where there's conflict in the world. Rather, it's a war that has been raging from the start of creation. You and I, as followers of Jesus, are in a war. We are in a day and daily battle, aren't we? of following Jesus. It is not easy, but we're not left on our own. We're not left helpless. Paul tells us that we need to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his power. The strength doesn't come from ourselves, but it comes from God. That same power that Paul is telling the Ephesians is available to them is available to you and I. The power of God gives us the courage, it gives us the strength to be following followers of Jesus in a day and daily battle of faith. Paul was writing his letter in prison, probably in Rome. He was constantly in the company of soldiers, chained to them. So he had plenty of time to think about their armour. In the Old Testament we find some of these pieces written of as well, the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation, we learn of that in Isaiah. Each piece of the armour of God that we read about in Ephesians 6 is for our protection. God's truth wrapped around us. The righteousness of Christ guarding our hearts. God's salvation protecting our, our heads. Ready to go with the, the good news. Faith as a shield against the flaming arrows of the evil one whom we are in battle with day and daily. 
The whole armor of God represents all that God provides for us in salvation and is God's protection for us in our daily living. And alongside all of these defensive pieces, though, there's just one weapon that we're given. We're told that it's the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. We don't take up physical weapons against the enemy like soldiers do, but we're called to take up the Word of God, the Bible. This is what we're to wield in our day and daily battle of faith. God gives us his own armour. And in a passage like this, it's probably the thing that we want to focus on maybe. Maybe it's just a a boy thing, a man thing, thinking about soldiers and armour and weapons. But it's important to see that God has given us something else as well. As vital as the armour, something we neglect at our peril. You see, when we think about the armour of God, it's almost always thinking about it on our own. It's something we put on by ourselves. You imagine yourself as you awake, or as you're in the shower, maybe as you're putting on your clothes, thinking about the armour of God, asking God to be with you in the day that lies ahead of you, to guard your heart and your mind. It's mostly as an individual that we think of the armour of God. But then the other, the other thing that God reminds us of here is that we're not in the battle alone. We're not the lone ranger having to fight on our own. We're soldiers in a battle together in an army. We're called to be soldiers of Christ, each one of us. Don't you know that there's a war on? And the church is fighting together. Here's what Paul says. He says, pray in the spirit at all times and in every prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert and always persevere in supplication for all the saints. Pray also for me that I may declare it boldly as I must speak. Sometimes we forget that the Ephesians is a letter written from Paul to the church in Ephesus. And right at the end, we have this personal bit that perhaps we sometimes don't know what to do with. But here, it's another reminder that we are in this together. One church connected together, encouraging each other in in our faith as we stand together as brothers and sisters in Christ, as soldiers in Christ, as we face our front lines. Now, our front lines might be Afghanistan, they might be in Syria or Iraq. Our front lines may be within our families, where we interface with others within our family who are not followers of Jesus. Our front lines may be at school or in college, where we're with people day and daily who are not followers of Jesus. Our front lines might be in our workplace, where we're working alongside colleagues who have no time for Jesus. That's our, 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 our battle line. That is our front line, where we have to stand firm and fast on God's word. Put on the armor that God has provided. And our task is to pray for ourselves as Christian soldiers, for our church family, and for all Christians to stand firm and fast in the battle we face in our daily living as followers of Jesus. Let us pray. And Father, we want to give you thanks today for the reminder of what it means to be soldiers of Christ, each one of us, followers of Jesus. And we realize, Lord, that each one of us face a daily battle, day by day, remaining faithful and true to Jesus. Lord, when we turn to prayer, there can be distractions that come our way. When we open up our Bibles, Heavenly Father, very often we find that our minds are in other places. There can be many distractions that would seek us to lead us away from coming to the church prayer meeting or the Bible study or even worship itself. 
we realize, Lord, that Satan is at work. Satan is work. Satan is wanting to do his harm against the church. Satan is wanting to distract and attract believers away from the Savior. Oh, help us, Heavenly Father, to put on that armor of God and that the only weapon that we would hold in our hands would indeed be the Word of God, that we would bring Scripture to mind, Heavenly Father, that we would be able to speak words of Scripture into situations where we are tempted, where we are under pressure. And Heavenly Father, we just thank you for the work of military chaplaincy too. We thank you for those who are willing to put on the uniform of our country and go and serve our land to bring peace and protection. Watch over them, we pray this day. And we ask, O God, for those who minister to them as chaplains, that they will be found faithful to your word. In the Saviour's name we pray. Amen. Well, we're going to draw our morning to, uh, to close, morning worship to a close with the words of our final hymn. Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart.